Let's uh, pray together. Father, thank you once again for the chance to be here, gathered as your church in worship. Thank you for a chance to sing to you and pray and, and fellowship and just love one another. It's been such a sweet time. And, and now we pray that you would help us as we read your word and study it. Pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, that you would uh, convict us where we need to be convicted and where we need repentance. Pray that you would encourage us and comfort us where we need to be comforted. And we just invite you, Lord, to come and have your way. And do all that you want to do here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, hey, go ahead and open a Bible with me to the book of Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the seats in front of you. We'll also have the words on the screen if you need. But we're in the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 9 this morning. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at FBC, and we just want to welcome you. We're so glad that you're here joining us this morning. And this is week three of our new sermon series where we're just walking through the New Testament book of Acts, and we're going to be doing so for some time. Uh, this is week three. Uh, Acts is a historical document written in the first century by Luke, who was a, a physician, a doctor, and he he chronicled the early movement that we call the church, the early movement called Christianity, where people came to trust in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and then how uh, the message of the gospel of Jesus moved out and exploded into the ancient world, and lives are transformed, and communities are transformed, and churches are planted. And so we get to read about all of that as we walk through the book of Acts. As we're getting started, again, I want to point out sometimes in church world, we get really busy doing spiritual things without uh, experiencing deep spiritual growth. Let's say that again. It's possible in church world to get really busy doing spiritual things without experiencing uh, deep spiritual growth and transformation. We can focus on activity and less on impact. We can get really busy, but don't always see life change. Now, author Pete Scazzaro wrote about this in a book. He identifies this problem with discipleship in our churches, how when we follow Jesus, often our approach is maybe a little bit imbalanced. And it looks more like focusing on doing things for God rather than being with God. Again, we focus more on doing things for God, all the books and, and ministries and maybe talking points and maybe sermons we hear a lot about doing things for God, getting busy for God. God has a job for you to do, work to do, so get out and do it. And we, we talk less about being with God, worshiping him, enjoying God, being in his presence. And I, I'd be willing to bet that you've sensed this dynamic Maybe you've heard it, heard it directly taught um, that, hey, if you want to be a healthy, faithful Christian and follow Jesus, here's the list of things that you have to go and do for God. You got to give and serve and pray and attend and watch VeggieTales if you were a kid growing up in the 90s and 2000s and invite and help 
and, and study and so on, right? There's, here's all these things you need to do for God. And even if you're new to church and maybe you haven't, like you don't have a lot, much of a background with church, I'd be willing to bet you, again, step into church world and you maybe view religion or spirituality in those sorts of terms. That it's about here's uh, all the things that you have to do for God to be a good Christian. That's what, that's what it means, we would say. Now, I want to be clear that doing things for God is not bad, right? There's plenty of things God calls us to do in the world as his people, as his representatives. Uh, There's commands we are to obey, no doubt. So I'm not saying there's nothing for us to do. I'm just saying that sometimes we get the balance off and we don't talk enough about needing to simply be with God. And it's possible, it's possible to go to church and do the churchy stuff and jump through the spiritual churchy hoops while still missing the heart of a relationship with God. That before we're called to do things for God, we're called to be with God. That being actually comes before doing. And it needs to be said here as we're starting the study in the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is a book of action and activity and impact and things that are being done in the name of Jesus and the gospel moving out and and people loving their neighbors and, and sharing the gospel and lives being transformed and churches being planted. And so we see all kinds of activity, lots of doing. But we see throughout the book as well, and also in our passage specifically this morning, this emphasis on being with God, this example of being with God underneath all of the activity, preceding the activity, we see a people, a group of people that are focused on seeking God and being with him. We'll see that in the text in just a minute. But first, I want you to see where we started. You heard a bit already, chapter 1, verse 9. Listen to it again. See where we start this morning. It says, after he said this, this is Jesus, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So let's talk about what we've seen so far. The book of Acts so far, the eight verses we've already seen have been talking about Jesus resurrected alive, right? After his death on the cross, he's seen alive again, resurrected, and he's walking with his disciples and he's teaching them for this period of 40 days. And last week we saw that he told them about the mission that was ahead. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, kind of summary verse for the whole book. The Holy Spirit will come upon them. And then he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. So there's a mission ahead that you, my people, are going to make me known throughout all of the earth. And then we read this curious event here in verse 9, what's known as the ascension. I've never preached a passage, or I've never preached a sermon on the ascension. You guys are guinea pigs. Here we go. Um, The ascension of Jesus, where he's taken up to heaven. Verse 12 tells us, little context, this all takes place uh, at the Mount of Olives. We have a picture of it. It was a a ridge, a a mountain, kind of hillside outside the city of Jerusalem that was facing the city, uh, known, of course, for its olive trees. And a lot of important events in the Bible uh, happened here, especially in the life of Jesus and his final days on earth. It was the place where Jesus would often teach. It was from the Mount of Olives that he entered the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday during Holy Week, 
to cries of Hosanna. It was uh, where he was arrested uh, in the garden, right? At the base of the Mount of Olives was the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was arrested before he was crucified. And now we, we read about this event happening on the Mount of Olives, the ascension where Jesus is taken up into to heaven. And notice what's happening here. Verse nine, Jesus had spoken and then he was taken up before their very eyes He's like, lift, like physically lifted up and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. So there's this incident where Jesus is lifted up from the ground physically and the disciples watch him kind of like levitate, float up into the sky until a cloud uh, hides him from view. And essentially the angels then say he's returned to heaven to be with the father. Now, a couple of like, notes here. Um, first, it wasn't like Jesus was a released helium balloon and he like, just kept getting smaller and smaller until they could see him no more. It's like, whose turn was it to hold the string? And they you know, accidentally let him go and off he goes. It wasn't like that where he just kind of floated away uh, until they couldn't see him anymore. Um, it also wasn't like the cloud was some kind of heavenly vehicle that he rode to heaven, like a, a cloud motorcycle where he like, put his cool shades on and, you know, I'll be back and mm, rode off on his cloud into heaven. It wasn't like that. It was more subtle. Okay. This cloud simply comes and blocks him from view. Now, of course, clouds often in scripture indicate the, the presence of God or the, the glory of God in a, in a unique way manifested. And so, so this event signals that God's doing something <clears throat> special here, that, that Jesus is, is leaving and his earthly walk is, is fundamentally now shifting and he's going to be back with his father in heaven. There's a few things we can take away from this. First, uh, this marks a, a new era in the life of the church dawning, where no longer would people come to faith by laying eyes physically on Jesus as he walked and ate with them and hung out. Now, they'll become followers of Jesus through believing in the message of the apostles, right? believing the gospel and responding in faith. We see that in the next chapter, the Holy Spirit will fall upon the disciples. So Jesus said, right, he would go away and send his spirit. So his departure uh, sense, uh, sets the stage now for the coming of the Holy Spirit to continue the work of God in the world. We also see this Old Testament parallel. If you remember Elijah, prophet back in the Old Testament, he was taken up to heaven in perhaps a similar way. And his successor, Elisha, which I know the names are confusing, but Elijah taken up into heaven, his successor, his protege, uh, Elisha, the next prophet was there left watching and received uh, the spirit of God to continue the work of God. And so it's a parallel text here where we see in the same way, Jesus ascends back to heaven and the, the people of God, the disciples are left given the spirit to carry out the work of God. Also, we see that this is the final step of Jesus' earthly life and exaltation. Or we can look at the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension as this kind of two-part act where Jesus is glorified. He, he conquers death. He proves to be who he said he was. And now he's exalted and reigning on the throne in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Acts chapter two, verse 33 
we were skip ahead a bit, talks about how he's exalted at the right hand of God. And being at the right hand of God was a place of honor and glory and power. <clears throat> so we can see from this that we were, we were created to behold, to look at the glory of God. We were created to be in awe and worship as we look at who God is. It's that same wiring within us that makes us stand before the Grand Canyon and go, whoa. Right? We're hardwired to look at glory and be moved by glory. And so the ascension of Jesus is something that can remind us of this, that Jesus is exalted in glory. He's the one risen savior, the one ruler and king of the universe, exalted in his glory, worthy of worship and our whole life and whole heart devotion. But notice the text doesn't just speak of the ascension, right? What happens next? It also speaks of his return because what goes up must return to judge the living and the dead. That's how the phrase goes, right? It's a little pastor joke. It's not about gravity, but um, what does verse 11 say? Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So two angels appear and they say, hey, guys, why are you, you know, still looking up into the sky? In other words, you, okay, nothing more to see here. You've seen what was supposed to, to happen and now off we go. There's a mission ahead. And this same Jesus who was taken into heaven will in the same way come back. There's, there's a promise of his return. Now, we talked about last week how we don't know the timing of the return, right? We don't know when Jesus will return. And we shouldn't try and calculate it and figure it out because we won't be able to. We should simply live ready for that day. We don't know the timing, but we have the promise. And it says he'll come back, what? In the same way, verse 11 says, right? So in the same way Jesus was uh, ascended to heaven bodily, physically, so he'll return bodily, physically, um, also visibly, right? They saw him go up. So we will see him return. We'll know when he comes back. I forget who, but I remember reading recently about groups um, that have claimed that Jesus already came back, but it was a secret return. It was spiritual. You didn't see it. It was like in Tibet or Mexico City or somewhere. And it was like, trust us. He came back. You just missed it. Um, this text remind us, reminds us that we don't have to worry about that that we don't worry about some secret spiritual return that nobody noticed or saw because it says he'll come back in the same way he went up bodily, visibly, noticeably. And if we're in Christ, then we have nothing to fear of that day. We look forward to his return when he'll usher in the fullness of his kingdom. He'll judge evil once for all, usher us into the new heavens and the new earth where we'll dwell with God forever. But also it'll be a day of judgment and fear for those who stand opposed to God, for those who have not trusted in Jesus, because he will be the judge of all the earth. And it'll be the end of history as we know it, right? He'll return. Things will change forever. We'll be off into eternity. We need to live in light of that day. We can't take this promise lightly. I remember a mentor of mine back in youth group when I was a wee lad in, in junior high or in high school, um, one of the volunteers in our youth group, he was an adult volunteer and he was a great man uh, and really had an impact in our lives. 
he was telling us about though his transformation in following Jesus, how he came to know Jesus and it radically changed his life, how he was kind of uh, soaking up, you know, the typical uh, high school and college script for uh, an American guy. He was saying, hey, I just want to uh, be in the party scene and drink and sleep around and have fun and do all those sorts of things. But then Jesus entered his life and it radically changed his heart and it transformed the trajectory of his life. He kept spending time with uh, those people that he knew before he came to know Jesus because he loved them. And so he still interacted with them and still would go even to some of the same parties. But some of his friends started to notice that he was actually acting and living quite differently. And so they asked him about it. And they said, hey, why aren't you drinking? And why aren't you getting drunk with us and partying with us the way that you used to? And his response, I've, I've never forgotten it. This is probably 16, 17 years ago. He mentioned it. His, his response was, Jesus is coming back. And I don't want to be drunk when he does. Like, that's pretty sound logic. <laughs> Jesus is coming back. I don't want to be drunk when he does. You see, there's this reverence, this, this way he was living in light of the return of Jesus. And we can apply that same logic to any number of things, right? Not just uh, being drunk, but Jesus is coming back. So I don't want to be lying and complaining when he does. Jesus is coming back. I don't want to be looking at porn when he does. Jesus is coming back. I don't want to be selfish and ignoring him when he does. Jesus comes back. I don't want to be rude and, and harsh to my wife or my husband when he does. It could change our perspective when we live in light of the return of Jesus. Now, the ascension isn't a topic we spend a lot of time talking about. Uh, we see it in scripture, of course, here. And I wanted us to see that it's captured in the Apostles' Creed. One of those early declarations of the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, that has uh, really been embraced globally uh, for followers of Jesus and the church throughout history. I want you to see how it speaks of Jesus. When we recite the creed here, sometimes you know, these are the words that we would read. You don't have to read it now. I'll read it. But it says, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the father almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So we see from this very early formation of the Christian faith, the early church uh, looked to the scriptures and saw that it taught this clearly about Jesus. He ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God, the father. From there, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And still today, this is a key part of, of Christian orthodoxy. Acts chapter one is a key passage that establishes that. So we see that, but look what happens next. Verse 12 it says, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew. James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The recent events, Jesus' teaching, his promise of the Holy Spirit, the ascension, all took place on the Mount of Olives, as we mentioned before, which was a short walk outside of the city. And now the disciples have returned back 
to the city of Jerusalem. And it says they gather in an upstairs room. Very possibly it's the upper room. Uh, the upper room where Jesus had his last supper with his disciples a little over 40 days before. Uh, we ultimately don't know if it was the upper room or simply an upper room, but they're upstairs gathered together. And they're simply, notice this, they're just doing what Jesus told them to do, right? In chapter one, verse four, Jesus says, hey, stay in the city and wait until you receive the promise of the father, right? The Holy spirit that would come and empower them. So they're back in the city, not leaving Jerusalem, waiting for the spirit. They had received the promise of God. And yet they were waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. Sometimes we read through scripture and we forget about the timing of events and we picture everything because we read through it in just one little sitting. We picture it happening uh, simultaneously or back to back or unfolding rapidly in sequence. And we forget and we overlook that there are times of waiting in scripture. Lots of them. There are gaps between promise and fulfillment. The Bible is full of examples. Just a few. Think about how long the people of God were in slavery in Egypt and were longing for freedom. They were here generations until God led them out. Or think about how those same people, when they were out into the wilderness before they entered the promised land, how long were they in the wilderness? 40 years. Or think about after the last Old Testament prophet, uh, how long it was until Jesus was born. And God spoke again. It was 400 years. The people of God were waiting, watching, and wondering what God was up to. Waiting is such a key part of the spiritual life. It's a place where God shapes us. It's a place where faith is actually necessary right? Because if everything just happened right away, we wouldn't really have to trust because it would simply be visible. But when we wait, we have to trust God. Now the delay here in Acts chapter one is relatively short. The promise of the Holy Spirit coming um, and then not, not far from now in Acts chapter two, that's going to happen. So relatively speaking, they're not waiting a long time uh, biblically, but still I wonder if they had, maybe were growing impatient as they're gathered for prayer. Maybe, I don't know if they're confused. If they're like, okay, Jesus left. He said the spirit was going to come. The spirit hasn't arrived yet. Uh, he told us to stay in the city. Still here. What's next? Not sure what we should do. I mean, would they get tempted? We know Peter, right? I mean, Peter's impulsive. He's a man of action. Maybe, I don't, I don't know. Is he getting riled up and wants to take things into his own hands and hurry things along? I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Um, but I know that's probably what we would do. <laughs> Right? I mean, we, we're really bad at, at patience, aren't we? And you guys are, I mean, I'm, we, you know, we are really bad at, at, at waiting. We are in a culture of, of instant gratification. Right? We don't like to wait. We're not good at waiting. We're probably the worst culture in the history of the world at waiting. Um, I know for me, like if I, if I try to load a website or something on my phone and it takes even, it buffers even for a second. I'm like, this is a piece of junk. I'm just, what I, this is supposed to be instant, right? Right when I need it, right? Um, or think even, we talked about this four years ago, but think about the, um, the way pictures are developed today. 
Anyway, if you're under 25, this is going to blow your mind. Listen to me. If you're under 25, there was a time where you would take a picture with a device separate from your phone and, and you wouldn't be able to see it right away. Say with me. You would take a picture and you couldn't look at it. Seriously, this wasn't that long ago. So I, I was alive at the time. You couldn't look at it. You had, to, you had to take it. You had to take the camera and the film to another location, to a service provider who would process your film. And they would take the film and, and in a dark room, lead the film through trays of chemicals. And you'd have to wait until the photos were developed. And then you'd go back and pick up your photos and then you'd be able to look at them. And eventually they developed you know, a 24-hour photo and it was quicker. And now, of course, we know. But so... Seriously, that was a real thing. Like, what world is this? What sort of torture chamber of waiting is this? Uh, but now, think about what do we do now? It's just all of us, cameras on our phone, and just, oh, that was a bad one, delete it. Oh, again, delete it, whatever. We can see them right away, as many as we want. Some of us have to get like multiple, like extra data plans on our phone because how many pictures we have because they're just so loaded. But so, so what, what's happened though is, We've so sped things up, right, in so many ways, with technology, with, with pictures, with whatever else, you, you name it. And so what often happens is we then have this assumption that that's how spirituality works, too. We can just speed it up. We're, we're used to things ready now, instant, when we see them, and, and yet that's not how the things of God work. True spiritual growth and maturation and impact often is not something that happens overnight. We're formed and shaped as followers of Jesus through waiting and faith and trusting the Lord. In fact, one priest said it this way. He said, the one who hurries delays the things of God. In other words, when we get impatient and try to rush things or force things, according to our timeline, it actually makes things take longer. It makes them worse. It muddies the situation. The one who hurries delays the things of God. So sometimes the, the faithful step for us is simply to watch and wait and trust. So look again, verse 13, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James. Uh, the text tells us who was there, these disciples. It's the 11, the 12 minus Judas Iscariot. And we're going to plunge into that more next week. The, the 12 and the disciples and what happens in the f- next few verses. But just, just one brief observation for this morning. Notice that it's a pretty diverse crew. Right? Some of these, these characters are uh, fishermen. Uh, some of these men were, again, tax collectors, um, zealots. So zealots were like Jewish revolutionaries who wanted to go like attack and, and you know, kill the Romans basically. And tax collectors were Jewish traders who like worked for the Romans. And so they really were on like opposite sides of the political spectrum. And, um, and, then, and then we have women, verse 14. Women, uh, which again, women as, as disciples of a rabbi in the ancient world was, was not at all common. And so, so we see Jesus bringing together this really unexpected, or un- unexpected group to be his disciples with diverse backgrounds and diverse philosophies. 
And if he did that with his disciples back then, he's going to continue to do it with his disciples in his church today. And, and we should expect people from all, all backgrounds and, and social standing and uh, ethnicity and philosophy to be brought into the church, right? We should expect to see everyone, no, no matter your background, because Jesus invites all to come to him. Now, it's come as you are, right? It, but we don't stay as we are. And so sometimes when I preach this point, it sounds like, hey, you have like all your preconceived convictions and you have all your preconceived convictions and just keep them. Jesus doesn't care if you hold on to those. And it's like, that's not the point. The point is that we come with whatever we have, whatever our background, whatever our baggage, whatever our views, we come and then Jesus shapes and changes and transforms all of us. And so we're all going to have things that we're going to need to let go of. And we're all going to have things that, that we saw differently beforehand, but then Jesus smacks us around a little bit in a loving way and says, actually, no, this is how you need to live and walk and believe and so on. So no matter your background, we all need to go through that formation process None of us are immune to that. But the good news here, um, one is that we should uh, allow space for and be gracious with one another because we're a diverse group as these initial disciples were. And also, again, the reminder that Jesus catches his fish before he cleans them. And so he catches us as we are. And he invites us warts and all with all our mess to come to him. And then he brings us through this process of, of transformation and cleansing. And he changes us and he forgives us for our sins uh, when we come to know him. And then we're in this process of formation for the rest of our life. But look with me at what the disciples were doing. Verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. So they're gathered in this upper room and they are praying. It says they're actually constantly in prayer. It says they're all joined together in prayer. The idea of that word is that there's, they're of one mind in prayer. They're, they're unified in prayer. They're, they're seeking God as one body together. Now, I admit, I was really tempted to read past this really quickly in sermon prep. I was like, kind of maybe feels like a little filler line, you know, like, hey, the ascension, exciting action. Wow. And then chapter two, the coming of the Holy Spirit in tongues of fire. Wow. Exciting. And then between the action, you know, they were praying. Okay. Let me mention that. Move on. Um, but God slowed me down and again, gently in the name of Jesus, slapped me around and helped me see that actually, hey, there's actually a lot for us to see here in this, uh, these short few verses. It's, it's so rich when you go slowly through scripture, right? And stop to see actually, wow, there's a lot here. If I just sit with this for a minute, they joined together constantly in prayer. One author noted that 20 of, of 28 chapters in the book of Acts talks about how the church was committed to prayer. So, so underneath and again, surrounding all of this missionary activity and the growth of the church, we see this faithful, unified group of men and women in prayer. And so this is where we arrive back where we started the morning. How we so often think about discipleship in terms of doing for God rather than being with God. And yet here we see these first followers of Jesus waiting and seeking to be with God before the work starts. They know the work is ahead, but first they seek God in prayer. 
So really they model for us that being with God is more central than doing for God. And sometimes we value and estimate our worth in the kingdom or how much God loves us based on our productivity and output. But that's not how God sees us. Being comes before doing. We need to remember the gospel, which 1 John 4.10 says is not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It wasn't that we loved God and we worked our way up to him. No, he loved us and made a way for us to come to him. We're thinking of second Corinthians chapter five. We quote it often here. It talks about how God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them in Christ. He was reconciling the world to himself. This is relational language. And we've been given the ministry of reconciliation to invite people, men and women, to come and be reconciled to God. God has made a way for you to be forgiven and brought back into his family. He wants to lavish his love upon you if you would trust him and receive Christ. And so we have to, as a church, grow in in making space just to know and enjoy God, that we would be a people uh, about being before doing. Because here's what happens. If we don't do that, then we can just come and play the spiritual games and and do the church thing and look kind of okay on the outside, but still have the same insecurities and the same fears and the same unhealth in our hearts. And we never really will experience transformation because the only way we, we truly change is we, we behold the glory of God and we sit in his presence and we hear his voice and he shapes us. And so if we're not doing that, then we're going to be just led astray by whatever other voices are in our life, whatever other noise is in the world. Uh, and we need to just sit with him and, and be with him in prayer. So maybe, maybe God's reminder for, for us this morning is that he wants to do a great work through you, or excuse me, in you, before he does a great work through you. And maybe the delay and the waiting in your life the space between promise and fulfillment isn't because God is unfaithful or slow in bringing about his promises or he's forgotten you. Maybe it's because he loves you and is doing a work in your heart even now. And he invites you to trust him. John Piper has said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. God's always doing so much more in our lives than we are aware of. We maybe catch glimpses here or there, but our call is simply to trust that he is who he says he is and is doing what he said he will do, that the work he started in us, he will bring to completion. So consider this, is your life marked by prayerful waiting? Where does that uh, time and space happen for you in your life? Where you sit with the Lord? And, and seek his will and listen to his voice and his word. And so um, we're going to have a response and a, a way to respond now as a church family. Uh, I think it went over pretty well with first service. 
We'll see if I get some emails. I think people are on board. But what we're going to do this week, we're going to try something. We did this years ago. So if you've been around the church forever, you might remember this from a few years ago, where I want to encourage us to take a step of faithful prayer this week. And before when we did this, it was kind of like an un, there was no end date on it. So it was a little scary. This is way more like focused and he's just going to be one week where here's what we were going to do or what I'm going to do and what I invite you to join us in. Um, I want us to set an alarm on our phone for a prayer reminder. And if you have an iPhone or some sad imitation device, then you can pull it out and look at your... You have a clock, okay? There's a, on the clock, you know how to set an alarm, okay? So you can, you can do this right now. Permission to pull out your phone in church if you would like to join it. You can put, take out your phone and, and add an alarm. I want to invite you to set your alarm for 1.14 this week. 1.14, we'll go p.m. You can go a.m. if you're really devoted. Um, 1.14 p.m., and you can set it to repeat and just check every day this week. Okay. And save, turn it on. Okay. So our phones now uh, for this week are going to go off at 1.14. And it's going to be a reminder for us to seek the Lord together in prayer, wherever you are. You'll have a minute to stop. Now it's fun because you might be in like a meeting or in the middle of something and your phone's going to go off and maybe someone will be like, what's that? And you'll be like, well, this, let me tell you, this is a cool thing our church is doing. There you go. It's an opening for a spiritual conversation. But the point of the 114 is Acts chapter 1, verse 14, what we just read. Acts 114, that says, they all join together constantly in prayer. So at 114, we're going to do that just for one week. Just for one week. And, and I feel like it's important because we're starting this book of Acts study. And we're going to see just all that God does and the impact and the growth. And again, often before God wants to do a work through us, he needs to do a work in us. That was an exclamation point on the point. No, <laughs> it's good. It was an exclamation point. It's beautiful. Um, so I want to invite you to pray with us. And you can use that prayer time in, in one of two ways. Or hopefully both. One would be just an opportunity for you at 114 when it goes off to sit with the Lord and say, Lord, uh, what do I need to hear from you today? Is there, is there a passage that comes to mind, Lord, I need to read? Maybe you can, if you don't know where to go, you can just read the book of Acts again. Open up to chapter one, read through it, see what the Lord brings to your mind. But simply ask that question, Lord, what do I need to hear from you today? And maybe he wants to encourage you and comfort you. Uh, and give you strength. Again, maybe he needs to point out something in your life you hadn't seen before. Maybe he's going to bring to mind a person or a conversation or some way you need to go ask for forgiveness or whatever. I don't know. But see, Lord, what do I need to hear from you today? And the second way we can use that time is to say, uh, Lord, I want to bring before you men and women in my life who, who don't know you. Right? If we're going to be witnesses of all that Jesus has done, and we're going to share the gospel and have opportunities to tell other people about Jesus and how he's changed our lives. Let's be praying for those people and those opportunities. And what if each day we say, Lord, is there anyone you want me to share the gospel with? Lord, would you help me be ready to talk about you if that uh, event comes up today? Uh, Lord, this person in my life doesn't know you and I would love uh, for them to encounter you. Would you help me be a part of that? Would you soften their heart? Would you do whatever you need to do? So Lord, what do I need to hear from you today? And then second, bringing before others in prayer that we would have an opportunity to point them to Jesus. Again, um, it would be foolish for us to run out ahead 
and say, Lord, in our strength and our power, we're going to get things done and we're going to bring, uh, you know, other people to come to know you, or we're going to do whatever good work we set our hearts to do. The Lord has to go before us. And so this is a way just to humble ourselves and say, Lord, we're going to seek you in prayer at the start of this whole acts thing, because we really want whatever comes to be from you and not us, Lord. So come and have your way. Would you pray with me now? Father, we love you and we are just so grateful to be in your house as your children. Thank you that you've lavished your love on us, not because we have worked for it or earned it or um, have jumped through the hoops or whatever. You've just given it to us freely because you love us. Because of the work of Christ, you have forgiven us and given us his righteousness and you've adopted us as your sons and daughters and we get to enjoy now this new life and new heart with you. Thank you, Lord. Where else could we go to find eternal life in such blessing? So Lord, now would you fill us with joy and your spirit? Again, as we go out, would you help us hear your voice and, and do your work? Would you use us as your witnesses? And um, we love you so much. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.